0: Genesis chapter 45, if you turn there to verse 5, you find that Joseph had met his brothers. And he was telling them things like what we read in verse 5. He says to them, remember who his brothers were in relationship to, in relationship to him and what they had done. He says in verse 5, and now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God." sent me before you to preserve life. And again in verse 7 he says, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph really could see God on the other side of his brother's evil deeds. It was... ...God who had sent him to Egypt. It was God who had a purpose for Joseph... ...a purpose to do good to those who had hurt him most deeply. A purpose for Joseph to be a deliverer... ...for the people of that entire region. And because Joseph saw God... ...he had really perfect freedom to live in grace. And living in grace meant... ...as we just heard in these verses, forgiving his brothers and even comforting and caring for them. Joseph drew near to his brothers. He he kissed them and he wept upon them. He didn't just mouth pious words about forgiveness. He leaned into loving them. He poured himself into blessing them. He laid himself open. He became vulnerable to them, tender and approachable even though he really had every reason to stand aloof like an offended sovereign. And to let them kiss the scepter that he extended them and plead for his mercy. So now, having met his brothers, and having laid himself open to them, we come in this section to the great fulfillment, the final fulfillment of all of Joseph's dreams, to that moment that Joseph has waited for for 22 years. That's where we are this morning. And so let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that you build in us expectation for what you will do so that we can learn to rely upon you and that we can learn to draw all our satisfaction from you while we wait. Thank you that you always come through, that you always bring your dreams to pass, that nothing ever escapes your care. So that means us. We are part of that people upon whom you lavish your love, upon whom you demonstrate your grace and to whom you fulfill every promise for good. Help us to see you this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we here meet the final fulfillment of Joseph's dream. Now you may remember that we've had a number of different parts of Joseph's dream already fulfilled. So if you trace all the way back to Genesis chapter 37, you remember Joseph really had two dreams. The first dream, he saw... Well, do you remember what he saw in the first of the two dreams? He saw sheaves of wheat, and what were the sheaves of wheat doing? Bowing down to him. How many sheaves of wheat were there? Eleven of them. Right. Eleven. Eleven. Whatever that, yes, eleven. There were eleven of them. That's right. And why were there eleven of those? Because it was all of his brothers. Exactly. But there was a second dream. And what was the second dream in Genesis chapter 37? Sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to him. So, now at this point in Genesis chapter 45, what have we seen of the two dreams fulfilled? We saw the first one fulfilled, right? Have the brothers come to Egypt and bowed down to him and acknowledged his sovereign rule? Yes, they have. And now he's met with them, he's forgiven them. He's issued grace where justice was most certainly due. But was the second dream fulfilled yet? No. And that's where we are this morning as we walk into Genesis chapter 46. You know, waiting is a very hard thing to do. I remember very well as a grammar school student, I was late to mature and I could just hardly wait for my teeth to fall out. I, I just hoped that I'd find a loose tooth. And eventually, I did. I, I actually did have a loose tooth. And it fell out. And now I'm just hoping I won't have any more. <laughs> because I'm waiting for a new body when I get really permanent teeth. Or maybe you've experienced the, the anticipation, the expectation of waiting for seeds that you've planted in your garden to sprout. Or, or maybe the spring bulbs. We'll see them before too long, those tiny points of green appearing just above the rich brown earth and preparing to paint the landscape in waves of yellows and oranges and reds. About 12 to 15 years ago, I I made a longer term horticultural investment. I love gardening and and I bought this tree right here. And uh, we did a little bit of research as I purchased it. And um, I was down on a business trip in the Seattle area, in Issaquah, and um, I had uh, I stopped at a big box store, and stuff that's on sale that's green is just too attractive to me. And so we looked it up. And this, they said, was, they said it was a Magnolia Cobus. Have you ever seen a Magnolia Cobus? Now you have. That's, that's a Magnolia Cobus. But there's something interesting about this particular variety of Magnolia. And in doing the research, we found they say that this variety doesn't bloom for about 15 years. So I took a look at it, and um, I figured it had to be about three to five years old already. It was in the pot, and and um, it was a sizable, you know, good-sized tree. It was probably five or six feet tall already, and And so surely that meant I only had maybe mm, 12 years left. And so I could wait for it. And so we planted it. I brought it home, I purchased, I planted it. And I waited and watched spring after spring until one day it actually did begin to bloom. And you know that's really in one sense satisfaction, right? When we've waited for something, when we've anticipated it coming, we've waited years, and it was years before it came. I didn't have to wait 15. Um, by the way, it then quit blooming a year or two later, and, and I think it's still getting through the process of being a juvenile tree and deciding that it's going to bloom every year. But uh, it should be beautiful some year in the future, and I think it's got buds on it right now. So, uh, but it's a satisfaction when we finally come through something we've anticipated, something we've hoped for, something we've longed for, something we've looked forward to. So now think about Joseph. Twenty-two years later, expectation has built to this moment for the purpose of satisfaction. God bringing his dreams to pass. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 19 says this, and it's a really great summary of what it means to experience satisfaction. It says a desire fulfilled is Sweet to the soul, but to turn away from evil is an abomination to fools. The desire fulfilled is sweet to the soul. Implied in this idea of desire fulfilled is the idea of patient waiting. Right? Desire fulfilled. That means there was a desire that wasn't fulfilled, right? Isn't that what it means? It's a desire that you longed for that has now finally come to pass. Desire fulfilled, patient, waiting, waiting. Quiet endurance when it would have been easy to give up or even, even, get the second part of this, even to turn to evil to bring that thing which you desired to pass faster. to Get it to happen sooner. To hurry the process of getting the thing that we long to have. Really, this was the shortcut idea, that second part of this verse, that Satan tempted Jesus with in the third temptation in Matthew chapter 4. It says in Matthew chapter 4, the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain. Showed him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he, Satan, said to Jesus, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Did Jesus want to have all the kingdoms of the world? He goes on to say this. Jesus went up from the wilderness and began to preach... The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yes, it was the right thing for the kingdoms of this world to bow down to the Lord Jesus, but the timing and the way were all wrong. The shortcut Jesus could not take. He could not turn to evil in order to fulfill a righteous desire that should, in fact, come to pass and would be, in fact, very sweet to his soul. So Jesus... Jesus held on for the long road, for patient endurance, even for suffering, in order to enjoy the sweet satisfaction of fulfillment. Untainted by evil forever. The desire fulfilled here in Proverbs chapter 13 is sweet precisely because we've waited with patience for God to come through in his time and in his way. When he does, the satisfaction is so deep that really nothing else compares. And he vindicates all the time we've looked like fools. Jesus actually will, by the way, have all the kingdoms bow. In Revelation chapter 11, it says, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdoms will bow before the Lord Jesus, but only in his righteous time. It's been said there's only one thing worse than not getting what you want. And that's getting what you want. But I want to tell you that when what you want is aligned with what God wants, there's really nothing better than getting what you want. For 22 years, Joseph has wanted. He's longed. He's waited. He's hoped. He's imagined. He's dreamed. I don't know what he's thought through all those dark days of prison when he was alone and suffering, perhaps uh, an iron collar around his neck, his feet in fetters, but you can be sure that he thought of Genesis chapter 37 and the two dreams that God had given to him, and he's waited and waited and waited. And then even when his brothers came, notice that he waited longer. It was not yet the right time. He waited until God's time had come, ...to be able to bring that sweet satisfaction of his soul. So Joseph continues to work together with God. He continues to wait for the final part of his dream to come true. In Genesis 45 and verse 16, we read... ...when the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come... It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is before you. Basically, Pharaoh says, go back home get your father, actually send your brothers back, get your father, their households, but don't even bother to bring your things because I will take care of you. Notice the report was heard in Pharaoh's house. How do you think it had been heard in Pharaoh's house? Well, you remember earlier on, Joseph wails so loudly that they're hearing it up at the king's house? The report is heard in Pharaoh's house. Joseph's brothers have come, and Pharaoh says, this is a good thing. Send them back. Bring them here, and I will take care of them. So the brothers prepare in verse 21 for the journey. It says here in Genesis 45, verse 21, "...the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh... ...and gave them provisions for the journey to each of them." Now I want you to picture this this setup that's taking place. "...to each of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave..." "...listen, three hundred shekels of silver and five changes of clothes to his father..." He sent as follows. Think of the procession this makes. Ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt. Ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. And you can imagine why. So think of what's happened. He's loaded these donkeys, 20 donkeys and wagons. He is loaded up with all these riches of Egypt, and he sends them back, but he also said, I'm giving to Benjamin five times the number of garments, and I'm giving him the only money that I'm passing out to you. Seven and a half pounds, roughly, of silver. It was quite a bit of silver. If you calculated that by the current value of silver today, he basically gave him $2,000 in spending money for the trip. And he says to the brothers, Now, don't quarrel on the way. It's an interesting and poetic irony that's taking place here that Joseph would give to Benjamin this silver because you may remember that it was silver that was paid for Joseph's life. But do you remember how much silver? 20 shekels. 20 shekels. And Joseph here gives 300 shekels in spending money for the trip to Benjamin. Joseph values his brother 15 times the amount of what they paid for him as a slave 22 years before. And in addition, Joseph sends this entire train of goods back for his father. The donkeys loaded with good things and food and wagons... ...that were to carry his father and their households back to the land of Egypt. In verse 25... We read, so they went up, the brothers, went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him in verse 26, (laughs) I'd like to have been there to see this. This is what they told him. Joseph is still alive. He what? And he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his, Jacob's, heart became numb, for he did not believe them. If you've ever experienced really deep grief or a distress that is very significant or a trauma, you probably know something of the numbness of Jacob's heart. He was maybe just going through the motions from that point on. He was doing duties mechanically, almost like he could watch himself from outside of himself and see another person fulfilling the normal Ordinary functions that are required to sustain life. His heart just goes numb. He doesn't know what to do and he really doesn't believe them. He's numb with disbelief so much for the reputation of these honest boys as they had self-professed. He really didn't believe them. That cannot be. And he couldn't allow himself to believe them. That just doesn't make any sense. Joseph's been gone for 22 years. You told me that he was torn by a wild beast. I saw the garment. I saw the blood on it. And now you tell me he's alive and he's doing what? He's the, he's the Lord of all the land of Egypt? But then he goes on and he says, but when they told him all the words of Joseph, the things that Joseph said, when he heard all the words of Joseph, and when he saw with his eyes the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is, in fact, alive. I will go see him. I'll go see him before I die. I wish I knew what really had taken place and the nuances of the discussion that we aren't told here in Genesis chapter 45. How did the brothers explain this? How did they say, yeah, actually, we've lied to you, Dad, for 22 years? I'm not sure, but we do know that Jacob eventually knew, and we know it from what takes place in Genesis chapter 50. We're getting to that point. And it says in Genesis chapter 50 in verses 16 and 17, your father, the brother is now coming and pleading for mercy after Jacob has died. Your father, they say, gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. So they're saying dad knew. I don't know exactly when he knew. It seems likely that it was right here. And we aren't given the emotional pleasure of getting to step in and eavesdrop on that particular part of the conversation, but you can imagine the emotional intensity. Jacob's heart goes numb. He cannot believe his honest boys. And they're telling him something that just seems too, is it good or is it horrible to believe? But it's good. good, And he says, I will go and see my son, Joseph, who is alive before I die. Jacob did not dare to hope that his son's unthinkable report was true until the full evidence of the words of Joseph were reported and the wagons were sent and Jacob could look at all that Joseph had sent to him. It is enough. I'll go see him before I die. From Jacob's perspective, 46 opens, and looks at what's taking place now that Jacob is stepping into a journey that historically was a bad journey to make. And I want to show this to you. Historically, Egypt was the place you don't want to go. So Abraham, in a time of famine, remember we're in a time of famine, Abraham in a time of famine said, I'm going to go to Egypt. And he did. And it was there that he failed. He, he told Pharaoh that this woman that he was married to was not his wife, but he didn't actually say she wasn't his wife. He just said, she's my sister, which was halfway true, but ended up being a real failure, a black mark on Abraham's record. That was in Egypt, in a time of famine. It was the wrong place to go. And Isaac, Isaac... In a time of famine, interesting, the number of famines that are represented in this patriarchal group. In a time of famine, was told, do not go to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. Instead, stay here and I'll provide for you. And even though he didn't go to Egypt, Isaac then failed. In a matching failure to Abraham's, when he went to Egypt, he announced that his wife, Rebecca, was his sister. And where he stayed, sojourning in the land... ...halfway obedient to God, he did stay, he did sojourn in the land, he did not go to Egypt... ...but he announced that this woman, his wife, was his sister, and Abimelech, the king of the Philistines... ...was pretty upset about that. Egypt was the wrong place, so by specific command to Isaac, do not go to Egypt, I'll take care of you in the land. Don't you think that this God that could take care of Isaac in the land during a time of famine... ...would be the same God that could take care of Jacob... ...in the land of Canaan during a time of famine? Yeah, he he is. And it was Abraham who did go to Egypt and totally failed there. But now Jacob is told, in a time of famine, go to Egypt. And you'll be successful, and I will bless you. Look at what it says in the first verses of chapter 46. So Israel, it says, that's Jacob, took his journey with all he had... ...and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father... Isaac, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here am I, then he, God said, listen to what he says, I am God, the God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Really, it's not about the place. It's about who is with us in the place. Egypt had historically, from Jacob's perspective, been the wrong place to go by commandment and by failure of his forefather, his grandfather, Abraham. But now he's told it's not the place. It's whether or not you go with me. So we can say there's really no safer place than where God calls me. And we can say, there's really no better place than where God leads me. And we can add, there is nothing more satisfying than working together with God. So God says to Jacob, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid to go to the place of former failures, to the place where in the past I've forbidden your father to go. Go. And I will be with you. And he says it in five different ways he makes this promise. He says, I am God. I'm your father's God. I'm the God who made a covenant with your father Isaac and with your grandfather Abraham. And he adds, I will fulfill my promise. I'll make you a great nation. I'm the God who not only made the covenant, I'm the God who keeps the covenant. And he says... I will go with you. I'll personally escort you to Egypt. I am the God who leads. And we have a resonance of Psalm 23 much later on. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. The one satisfying element, you are with me. I will go with you, says God to Jacob. I will personally escort you into Egypt. I will bring you back again. I won't leave you when you get there. Because I'm the God who never abandons. And I will bring you to a good end. Joseph will close your eyes. He'll perform that last, most intimate rite for you as your son. I am the God who satisfies. I am God. I will go with you. I will take care of you in a place that in the past has been the wrong place. But now is the place I want to take you. When our way is confusing or uncertain, really one thing matters and only one thing. Are we with God? Or is God with us? Really, it's God himself that predicates all the blessings of safety, security, satisfaction on his presence alone. That's why the author of Hebrews writes this. Be content with what you have. And you could put parenthetically, whatever that is. Be content with whatever you have. How much do you have? What do you experience? Maybe you've got some needs. You say, well, I don't have much. Be content with what you have. For he has said, and here's the whole reason you can do that. The whole reason you can be content with anything or with nothing. The whole reason for contentment is based on this one reality. I, God says, will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what God has promised to Jacob here. He has promised, I will go with you. I won't leave you when you're there, and I will bring you back again. Genesis 46, 1 through 4, those are the promises of God to Jacob. Maybe you're in a tough time right now. Maybe you're in a place of difficulty or even distress. This is the one thing you need to know. It's the only thing that's required. It's interesting, if you march through the idea of contentment in the New Testament, you find that it narrows From food and shelter, as Paul talks about in one place, all the way till we get to the book of Hebrews where it says really only one thing matters, and that is do you have God and does he have you? That's it. That's the only thing. Not even food and shelter. You look at some of our brothers and sisters in places where there has been persecution for a long time, and they might not even have those things, but they do have this one thing. And with that, they can be content. Do they have Jesus? Do we have Jesus? In our distresses, in our difficulties, in our troubles, do we have Jesus? He is the one requirement for true contentment. He's the one requirement for ultimate satisfaction. So Jacob's trip to Egypt was really the fulfillment of a whole set of dreams that God is bringing to pass at this point. And I want to show it to you quickly here this morning. It's really the dream nexus. We find that in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, God promised this very thing to happen. And this is what he said in verse 13 of chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. He says, speaking to Abraham in that, in that really remarkable experience of the covenant being cut with him for a land and the things that would follow, God says to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners on a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So long before Joseph, Jacob is Told ...to go to Egypt. God said to Abraham, your family will go to Egypt. But notice it's not just for fun. There would be great things that would come from it. The possessor of heaven and earth would give a land to Abraham... ...but he would give it to them, to his people, through suffering. They will be afflicted, says God, for 400 years. Which is precisely what happened when Jacob and his family went to Egypt. And then we find Joseph's dream in Genesis chapter 37. And in Genesis 37, 9, we talk about the dream of Joseph. Behold, the sun, the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. And here comes Jacob, the final fulfillment of the dream, to bow down before Joseph, to join him in Egypt. The king of kings would make Joseph a ruler in his kingdom, but through slavery. He would give his people a land, but through suffering, he would make Joseph the ruler, but through slavery... Even Pharaoh's dream is remarkable in Genesis 41 and verse 30. There will come seven years of great plenty, Joseph announces... ...in interpretation of Pharaoh's dream throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine. Seven years of famine. The provider would provide his people with bread and direction. But through famine, through suffering, through slavery... Through famine, do you feel the expectation building that God is building a plan to bring his people good things, but through hard things, through difficulties and trials and distresses and long, long waiting? And then Jacob's dream. Jacob's dream here in Genesis 46:3 do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation, the covenant keeper, the covenant keeping God will make Jacob a great nation, but by making them aliens in a foreign land. Isn't that strange? Isn't that a really unusual way? God, isn't there a better way to do this than sending us into a foreign land, the great superpower of the day, putting us inside this superpower and there you're going to make us a great nation through suffering through slavery, through famine. As strangers far from home, from the land of promise, God says, I will satisfy you. So that our satisfaction, in one sense, can be in God alone. Expectation is the process of being patient when dreams die. And satisfaction, the fulfillment when dreams come true, but... Even in the middle, when we're asking, what is God doing? We can know that he's building our expectation, just as we've seen here. Just as we've anticipated and and watched as Joseph and Jacob walk through this process. God is building our expectation, our longing for something more, so that he can satisfy us with all that he is. God would really rather sacrifice the things that we can see so that we would come into contact, direct contact with him, the God that we cannot see, and that he alone would satisfy us. We come to the amazing end of this story, in the end of Genesis 46, in the intervening verses we read of all the names, of all the people who are going down with Jacob in these wagons provided by Joseph, all going to Egypt, 70 people in all, and at the end, in Verses 29 and 30, we read these words. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, read satisfaction here. Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. The dream was fulfilled. All that we've waited for, all that we've anticipated, all that Joseph has sought for 22 years has now come to pass, but it's come to pass in exactly God's time. All the pain and the suffering and the waiting flowed out in that one emotional moment as as Joseph's tears and Jacob's tears mingled together in an ocean of satisfaction in God and in the fulfillment of his good plan so long in coming. So what are you waiting for? What satisfaction have you not yet known? I wonder if we can join Joseph and Jacob in believing that God really is God. And that he will come through for us. That he will turn our expectation to satisfaction in the best time and way.